and it's mostly just filled with scripture talking about who Jesus is. And so we've been going through this for three weeks and we're on page number 10 tonight, number 14. Now you can hold your finger on page 10, number 14. And I just want to run through the main points, the main headings before we get to point number 14. I'm going to give you the first 13. So you weren't here just so you understand uh, what we've covered up to this point without getting into details. What I've really been trying to do here is establish biblically who Jesus is. We're going to look at the doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is, and then what he has done. And so in this evening services, rather than, than exegeting a text of scripture like we do in the morning, where it's more of a topical study, looking at different doctrines. And so we've been looking at the doctrine of Christ, who he is, and then later what he has done, his work of redemption. And so if you're on page number one, the first thing we saw was that Jesus is human. So number one, he's human. I'm not going to give you the subpoints. Number two, point number two, Jesus is God. Okay, Jesus is God. And there we have uh, on, on page number two, seven verses where Jesus is called God directly. Very important verses, especially when you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Muslims. Uh, these are really key texts. There we have seven clear ones, uh, direct ones in this mother text talking about how Jesus is God. That's point number two. Number three, Jesus is Yahweh, linking Old Testament passages, talking about Yahweh. This is the Hebrew name for God. And then say this is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, on page number three, Jesus is Lord. And Lord, not just master, uh, not just ruler or owner, but but Lord. He's, he's curious. He's the the same Lord, the Adonai, that is referred to as God in the Old Testament. And they have both Old Testament and New Testament texts referring to Jesus as Lord, as God of this universe. Number five, also on page number three, Jesus is the angel of the Lord. And we looked at some Old Testament texts showing how the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is an incarnation, pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ. Next, on number six, Jesus is eternal. Only God is eternal. Yet we see so many texts talking about how Jesus is the eternal one, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so we look at number six, Jesus is eternal. Number seven, Jesus is the I am. One of the names for God. Uh, Moses said, who, is it, who, is that, who am I going to say to the people of Israel who sent me? God says, I am that I am. And then we have Jesus saying, and using that same title, for himself. And uh, that's really quite remarkable, especially in the Gospel of John, Jesus using that title for himself, the I Am. Number eight on your handout, on page number five, Jesus is the creator. He's the creator of heaven and earth, creator of all things. All things are made through him and by him and for him. So, so many texts that talk about how Jesus is the creator. And again, only God is the creator. Number nine, Jesus is worshipped. Jesus accepts worship. People worship Jesus so many times in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, worshipping the Lamb, worshipping Jesus. And you can't worship anybody but God alone, but yet Jesus accepts worship. That was number nine. Number ten, this one's really good. Jesus demanded faith in himself. Different than a mere prophet who says, believe in God. 
But Jesus rather demanded faith in himself. Believe in me, he said. Like, who, who had the, the audacity, unless he truly is the Son of God, to say, believe in me, have faith in me. If you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. I am the way, I am the truth and the life. Now, these are the things that Jesus said. Again, not just claiming to be a mere prophet or a good teacher, but rather God in human flesh. Number 11, on the bottom of page 7, Jesus referred to God as my Father. The Jews understood this title, that Jesus was equating himself to God when he used this title, my Father. Number 12, Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Not referring to his humanity, but rather referring to the prophecy, the vision that Daniel received in Daniel chapter 7. This Son of Man, the Christ, who is going to be given a kingdom. And that kingdom will never end. And so Jesus is that rightful heir of the kingdom and he called himself the Son of Man. Again, a messianic divine figure from Daniel 7. Number 13. Jesus is the Son of God. Not a Son of God, but the Son of God. We ended last week by looking at this one, how Jesus is the Son of God. We looked at the significance of that, especially on the night when he was uh, being tried so-called trial by the high priest. And when the high priest asked him, are you the son of the blessed? In other words, are you the son of God? Again, using the term blessed to refer to God. Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And then he tore his garments and says, what need do we have for further witnesses? This man has uttered blasphemy because they understood for Jesus to say, I am the son of God was to make himself equal with God, to say he was God in human flesh. And so they crucified him because he used that title. So as we've been up to this point, and again, the the point, the reason why we're going through all of this is so that we would have such a firm, unshakable faith in who Jesus Christ is. Every single false religion out there, every single perversion of so-called Christianity out there is going to distort the person or the work of Jesus Christ. They must, and they do. Every single group. If they do not get Jesus Christ right, they do not have the gospel. If they do not get his work right, they do not have the gospel. So it's so very important that we understand that who Jesus Christ is, is so very clear in scripture. And that's why we're going through all these pages of scripture to see who Jesus is according to the authoritative, the infallible, inerrant word of God. So tonight we're going to begin at number 14. We're going to finish off these pages here tonight. So number 14. Jesus claimed to be God. Okay, Jesus claimed to be God. On many occasions, it says, the Jewish religious leaders tried to stone Jesus because he, being a man, claimed to be God. Okay, and this is why he was crucified. For those who reject, like Muslims, for instance, or, or even, even Mormons, Joy's Witness, they reject the deity of Jesus Christ. You ask them, why did they kill Jesus? Why were the Jews so incensed and want Jesus dead? It wasn't because he was feeding the poor. It wasn't because he was just a good teacher and just all around nice guy and so lovable. They killed him for what he said. They killed him because he, being a man, claimed to be the son of God. They, he committed blasphemy in their mind. That's why they killed him. Because he, being a man, claimed to be God. Now look at John 5.18. It's written on your sheet. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
right there. That's why the Jews were seeking to kill him. And that's why eventually they did, a part of God's plan. The Jews killed him because Jesus was making himself equal with God by the things that he did and the things that he said. John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And again, using the title, the name of God. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And again, why are they picking up stones to throw at him? Why did they want to kill Jesus? Because he, being a man, has just said something that equates him with Almighty God, the Creator. How can you say that? You're just a man. And so they pick up stones to stone him. John 10, starting in verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And Jesus answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's why Jesus was crucified. That's why they were so incensed. It's so clear in the Gospel of John over and over again. The reason why they wanted to stone Jesus, because he, being a man, was doing and saying things that equated him with God. In this morning's sermon, we looked at the gospel from 1 Corinthians 15, and we noted that this one phrase that is so very common, I heard some feedback from some of you this morning, this one phrase is so very common, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That is, we just, we just live a good Christian life, and, and people will be attracted to Christianity because of how we live. That's not true at all. We must speak. We must articulate the gospel. The gospel is a message that we must convey verbally or in writing. And you see here, they're not stoning Jesus for his good works. They were not so incensed or upset about what Jesus did. The reason why they hated Jesus, the reason why they persecuted him, the reason why they rejected him was not because of what he did. And we won't be rejected in our society because of what we do, but rather it's because of what Jesus said. And people won't hate us or persecute us or reject us until the name of Jesus comes from our lips. Until we call for repentance and faith in the one true living Lord who, who came down to this earth and who sacrificed himself on a cross and who now is exalted to the right hand of God and commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. As soon as we utter that, people will hate you. So they hated Jesus for what he said because he being a man made himself God. That's point number 14. Jesus claimed to be God. And in none of these cases, when they picked up stones to stone him, because they said, you're committing blasphemy. In none of these cases, did you say, no, 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 just wait a second. I'm, I'm just a prophet. I'm just a messenger. You got me all wrong. Jesus never said that. He never said that. He never corrected them. In fact, when they asked him point blank, are you the son of the blessed? He said, I am. I am. Number 15, number 15, Jesus exercises God's authority. Jesus exercises God's authority. Number of subpoints here, and these ones are really, really neat. Okay, number one, Jesus had the authority to cast out demons. The authority in himself to cast out demons. Mark 127. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, 
and they obey him. This is something that, again, only, only God has this kind of power to just speak and to make things happen. To speak and command the unclean spirits and they obey. Yet Jesus has that authority. Number two, Jesus had the authority to give divine teaching. We see in Mark 1, 27, we just read a new teaching with authority. Okay, look at Matthew 5, 18. It says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, Jesus is not saying, look, this, this, is what, this is what God has said. Now I'm just conveying this to you. No, this is what the prophets have said. I'm just a rabbi. I'm giving you an interpretation. He says, truly, I say to you, I am the one with authority and I am saying these things to you. Look at Matthew 5, 22. He goes, you've heard it said. Then Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is not just, again, he's not just a pipeline. He's not just a messenger. He's not just giving a message. But rather, he is teaching from his own authority. I say to you, he says. And this next text I want to read from Luke chapter 4 is especially one of, it's one of my favorite uh, accounts in all the Gospels. Because in that day when a teacher came to the synagogue, we had rabbis that would travel around, much like you know different evangelists or speakers would travel around in churches today, and they would go in the pulpit. But there in the synagogue, they wouldn't have a pulpit per se. But the teacher would come in front, and he would read from the scroll. You know, they'd give him a scroll, the, the Bible, just like we have today. And so they would open up the Word of God. He would read from that scroll, and then, like we do today, he would expound on that text. Here's what it means. Here, here's, its, here's its context, and here's how we ought to live in light of this text. And so it's it preaching very similar to what we have here today. Now here, Jesus comes to a synagogue to preach and to read from the scroll. And what he says is really quite astounding. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, says this. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Here he comes to the front to teach. Verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. Okay. He reads this from the scroll of Isaiah. Starting in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, and he stops reading there, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, like, what are you doing? He's supposed to be teaching now. And verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine that? Someone reading the scriptures and saying, yep, it's fulfilled right here. You're looking at them. I'm the one. I'm the one. And this is his hometown. The hometown that is going to reject him and cast him aside. What authority that Jesus had to come into the synagogue to read from scripture and says, that's me. It's talking about me. You know, and this is, this is the, the hometown kid that's grown up. Can you imagine this scandal? You'd be kicked at every church in town if you said something like this today. The authority of Jesus Christ and his teaching. Luke 4, 31 and 32. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. 
and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Because in those days, it's similar to like our day. You know, I come up here and I don't stand here on my own authority. I stand here based on what the word of God says. And I say, this is what God's word says. Any authority that I have in, in my voice or presentation or in the sermon is based on a mediated authority. It's God's authority, not my own. But when Jesus taught, they're like, wow, this guy has authority because he is teaching on the same level as the scriptures. He's not just interpreting the scriptures, not just conveying it to us, but rather he's teaching with God's authority. Amazing. Number three. Page number 11. Number three. Jesus had the authority to do mighty miracles. Mighty miracles. Matthew 11, starting in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. This is what they've heard and saw. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, when John says, are you the one? Are you, because John here is beginning to wonder. Here he has said just, just you know, uh, months perhaps before, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here comes the anointed one, the Messiah, and he baptized him thinking, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. And now John's in prison. And now he's got a death sentence. His, his head is about to be lopped off. And so now he sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you really the one? If you're really the one, why am I here in prison? Where is your kingdom? Jesus says, I am the one. And how does he tell him that? By saying, look at all of these mighty miracles that have taken place. This is pointing to his role as the Messiah. Matthew 8, starting in verse 26. He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus, again, wielding the power of God by controlling nature, the wind and the waves. Only God has such authority to speak and to control nature like this. John 2, verse 11. This was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus had authority to do many mighty miracles to attest to who he is. Looks like I have two number threes, but so we'll go to number three, number two here. Authority to raise the dead. Jesus has authority to raise the dead. John 5, 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. And again, just talking about the very nature of who Jesus Christ is. He has the authority to give life. The authority to, to create, and to renew, to resurrect. Only God has such authority. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You notice what she affirms there when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life? She affirms who he is. 
Our confidence in resurrection, our confidence in forgiveness of sins, our confidence in receiving mercy and grace of God is based on, rooted on the person of Jesus Christ. If we get the person of Jesus Christ wrong, if we have, have a Jesus who is not, who we claim to be not the divine son of God, then we, we don't have the gospel. We don't have that guarantee of forgiveness. And notice what her faith lied in when Jesus says he is the resurrection and life. Her faith is in Christ, believing that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God, that he is the one coming to the world. And the same thing with us as Christians. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. The next one, number four. Jesus has the authority to heal and forgive sins. The authority to heal and to forgive sins. Only, has, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Only God has the prerogative to forgive sins because sins are, are committed against God. So only God has the right to say you're forgiven. You know, if, if I was to do something to Rick, um, you know, Priscilla can't say, well, I, Tim, I forgive you for that. Yeah, she doesn't have the right to do that. Rick must forgive me for what I've done to him. The same way with God. If we've sinned against God, God must be the one to forgive. Somebody else can't forgive. People understood this even back in Jesus' day. In Mark 2, we have a very uh, famous story where the paraplegic, quadriplegic, comes down from the roof. Uh, Listen to what it says in Mark 2, starting in verse 5. So when Jesus saw their faith, because they have lowered down this paralytic from the roof to try to get get him in front of Jesus, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Okay, they're thinking this. Verse 7, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Okay, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is not blaspheming, so they're wrong in that count. Verse number 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves. Okay, he knew what they were thinking. And he says this to them. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Okay, stop there for a second. In verse number nine, Jesus says, what is easier to say? Is it easier to say to this man who's just been lowered in front of me, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, they'd be thinking, it's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because anybody can say that. It's a very easy thing to say, because you can't see sins forgiven. I can say to you, yeah, your sins are forgiven, and nothing's happened, nothing visible, and say, well, I did it. I have the power to forgive sins. So it's a very easy thing to say, because it's not demonstrated. It's very hard to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. Because if somebody says to a paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk, he better rise and take up a bed and walk or otherwise they realize that what you've spoken is false. So it's much harder to say to this man, rise, take up your bed and walk because he's got to do it. And so with that in mind, Jesus says this in verse number 10. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before him, before them all, 
so that they were all amazed and they all glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. No kidding. You don't see that thing every day. All right. So it's much harder to say to this man, rise, take up your bed and walk. And Jesus, what he says, he tells him first, your sins are forgiven. And then he gives him that crazy command to rise, take your bed and walk. And the man gets up and walks. And Jesus tells them why he did it this way. I'm doing it this way so that you know the Son of Man, this this messianic figure from Daniel 7, here he is right in front of you, the Son of Man, that way you know he has the authority to forgive sins. Because anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but not everyone can say rise, take your bed and walk. But Jesus healed that man so that they know when he said your sins are forgiven, he was speaking the truth and not blaspheming. Amazing the authority that Jesus had. Amazing. You can just imagine this, the crowd is an utter amazement what they're going on. These, these religious leaders are being stymied. They must have loved that to find these religious guys. They're all confused what's going on. And here they see a man, a paralytic, healed right before their eyes, right after his sins are forgiven. Before the last one, I read from Hebrews 7, verse 24. Speaking about Jesus, he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And we trust in that as we trust in our Lord. The last one, number five. Jesus has the authority to judge the living and the dead. He has the authority to judge the living and the dead. John 5, verse 25, again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of who? The Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Again, amazing, amazing description of who Jesus is. Matthew 7, verse 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of the scariest verses of the Bible for those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be many on that day who are deceived, who have done things in the name of Jesus and who will be turned away as workers of iniquity. And how will they be turned away? Why will they be turned away? They'll be turned away by Jesus because he's the judge. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because Jesus here is given the keys. He's given the authority to execute judgment. And he will judge. And he will judge all. John 14, 6. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Romans 14, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
And again, speaking of Christ's judgment, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, some people like to separate judgment seat of God and the white throne judgment, judgment seat of Christ, and they have all these different reasons for all these different kinds of judgments. But the Bible here is, is describing how these two judgments are the same. One's called the judgment of God, one's called the judgment of Christ. And again, speaking to who Christ is and his authority, carrying the authority of God to judge the nations, to judge individuals, to judge entrance into his kingdom, and also to cast people into hell. Jesus is given that kind of authority, and that's the authority that only God has. So in all these cases, whether it's healing, whether it's doing miracles, whether it's teaching, whether it's casting out demons, whether it's raising the dead to life, whether it's executing judgment, and all of these things, Jesus is exercising God's authority. And that's why they recognize this. This is blasphemy because you're a man. Yet all the things that Jesus did testified to who he was. It wasn't just what he said. It's also what he did. A few more here before we finish. Number 16. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is sinless. And no one is without sin except God. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Quite clear, over and over again, many different authors all throughout scripture, Jesus Christ is the sinless one. And again, this is another um, attribute of our Lord Jesus Christ that points to his deity, points to his divinity. Only God is perfect. Only God is free from sin. And here we have Christ free from sin. Number 17. The Spirit of God is called the Spirit of Christ. Okay, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. Amazing. Romans 8, 9 and 10. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, we understand that's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Anyone, he then says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, these terms are used interchangeably in Scripture. Again, magnifying the person of Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. Jesus gave us a promise. And, and it's last verse on this, this section here. Jesus told us to go out in all the world and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. How is Jesus with us always to the end of the age? Because Jesus is with us in the person, the ministry, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18. Now the Lord is a Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is Jesus, a mere man speaking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to dwell in your hearts. Meet me in the Father, the Spirit of God. We're going to be in your hearts. We're going to be with you. I'm going to be with you always until the end of the age. This is, a, this is a man speaking these things. But again, it points to Jesus' person, who he is. He is the Spirit of God. He is God in human flesh. And when we start thinking about all these things, it's really going to boggle and scramble our brains. But that's a good thing to be boggled when we consider the person of Christ and the work of God. Lastly, number 18. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again, talking about who Jesus is, the exact imprint of God. He is the image of God. We've been creating the image of God, but that is categorically different when the scriptures speak of Jesus Christ being made in the image of God, the exact representation. In fact, John says no one has ever seen God, but the only God at the Father's right side, he has made him known. This is the person of Jesus Christ. And, and when, when Thomas cried, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and he says, Jesus says, you know where I'm going. He says, he says in John 14, I, I, we don't know where you're going. And, and show us the Father. We, we, want, we want to see the Father. And Jesus says to them, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Because you've seen Jesus Christ made incarnate in the image of God. He is the image of God, as the scripture says here. Firstborn of all creation. Head, ruler over all creation. So as we've gone through this, it's taken us four weeks to go through these 18 points. And this is not meant to be exhaustive, but these are just 18 different points from the Gospels, from other places of Scripture that tell us who Jesus is. Now, as we go through this and we go through all this Scripture, not only does this serve as an apologetic function to, to, to share our faith with others and to have confidence as we share our faith, but not only that, these verses and who Jesus is, what I want to do as we, as we go through here is have a, such a firm commitment, a firm understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Our faith is so rock solid because our faith, our forgiveness of sins, our, our, our being face to face with God, having our tears wiped away, having our sorrows comforted, having sin and death conquered and being no more and, and enjoying life in his kingdom all come through who Jesus is. 
And we see he has the authority to deliver on his promises. When he says he's coming again, oh, you bet we can count on that because of who he is and who said it. When he says that if you believe in me, that you will not perish, but that you will receive eternal life, oh, you bet we can bet our life on that. Because look at who promised. Look at who who made those words to us. When he says, if anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh, we can get right in line. We can give up everything in this life. We can leave it all behind us. And whether it's coming to us at great cost, we can leave it all. Leave it all behind for the sake of Christ. Because look at the one who said those words. He is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to be worshipped. And we know that the things that he says are going to come to pass. Because he has shown himself so very faithful in what he said and what he has done. So let's rejoice that we have a rock-solid faith in a great and mighty Savior. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, he beckons all to come to him. He beckons all to come and to drink from the water of life freely. And we see this. He says, believe in me, come to me, and you'll never go hungry. You'll never go thirsty. Not for the physical bread, not for the physical drink, but spiritual bread and spiritual drink. Jesus is our life. And he promises us eternal life at his expense, at his cost. And we come to him by faith and trusting in who he is and in what he has done and in what he has said. Let's pray.